Welcome to Creative in Tech. Powered by Reed Speaker. Technology is constantly evolving, and the companies that adapt win. In this podcast, you'll hear from companies and thought leaders across various verticals who blend the art and science in one of the biggest growing spaces in technology, conversational AI. You'll hear how they're creating the touchtone experiences that will define the next generation of customer strategy. Join me, Carrie Roberts, your host for this podcast and the brand evangelist for North America at readspeaker.ai as we explore the intersection of creative and tech. Welcome to Creative and Tech, the podcast show powered by ReadSpeaker.ai. I'm your host, Carrie Roberts, and I'm the brand evangelist for North America at ReadSpeaker. This show is all about highlighting the brands and organizations that are creatively using one of the largest and fastest growing spaces in technology, conversational AI. And in these next few conversations, we're chatting with people about the banking and the financial space and how they're using that technology to grow, innovate, and thrive within their customer journey and strategy. And I am so thrilled and excited to bring to you today another fabulous guest, Mr. Ray Wong. He is the principal analyst and CEO at Constellation Research and the author of his new book to come out in July, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. Welcome, Ray. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. So I am so excited. So before we get into our full discussion, I want to start with you personally first. You've been in this research space and the technology space for a really long time. What is it about these two areas that excites you and that you're passionate about? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a big shift, right, in terms of how people are engaging with technology. So culturally, we see it on the consumer side. And then we're also seeing a big shift in how companies build business models for that technology. And so these two things are colliding, and it's creating a whole bunch of startups, creating a whole bunch of experiences and innovations. And we're just at the beginning. It's very exciting. And, you know, I was reading your parts of your new book, and I wanted to share a couple things here. But one of the things you talk about in your book is this idea of duopolies. So for people that don't know what that word means and what you're referring to, can you kind of define it a little bit and then talk briefly about, you know, what's happening here? Why are we seeing so many of these grow and seeing more of them in general? It's a great point. So when we think about duopolies, right, let's take Coke and Pepsi, right? We get it. They're two big fizzy water companies, Burger King and McDonald's, right? Another great example, Visa, MasterCard. These are companies that used to take 50 years, 60 years to get to the dominant market position. I mean, I remember these were all startups at one point in time. People were battling out in all these spaces. Ford and GM, that's another great example of companies that took 50, 60 years to get there. But what's changed over the last 20 years is companies take less than a decade to become a duopoly and in some cases, a monopoly. So think about this. In search, what do we have? Google. Like what's the other three players? Like most people don't know. Like you'd have to go think. Do you Bing on Google or do you Google and Bing? I, I, I don't know, right? <laughs> um, if you think like, you know, social media, like there's Facebook and like, like what else, right? I, I think there's a couple other things back then. I, I don't remember their names, right? And it's the same thing. Like, you know, like e-commerce, e your first thing comes to mind is Amazon, right? So, so there's massive dominance in each of these players. Like, and you have to figure out what's going on because like in less than 10 years, there's only two or three players in almost every market. And so that's, that's the first impact. Yeah. And I mean, I think we're all aware of it, but we're seeing it so much more. And you talk about in your book, something called data-driven digital networks or DDDN. And I just want to read something real quick that you wrote. 
You said the more data these DDDNs collect and analyze, the more accurately they can target users with more appealing products, services, and advertising, which leads to more user engagement, which leads to even more data collection, which leads to even more powerful marketing. In fact, this leaves no room for competitors because the user is caught in a closed ecosystem. This flywheel effect drives the exponential dominance of DDDNs. Let's talk about this. So again, if you could just define maybe a little bit more about what this means and what's happening and do you think that people are aware that this is going on? Well, one, no one's aware. Um, it's happening in the background. It's happening really quick. But the second thing with DDDNs is the fact that they're designed as 100-year platforms. They're collecting data. They're collecting insights. That powers their next de- decision, right? It's coming from voice. It's coming from signals. It's coming from scraping the web. It's coming from your transactions, your interactions, location data. All that stuff comes into play. Uh, and I'll show you an example of this. Um, so think about a company like like DoorDash, um, you know, DoorDash, Uber Eats, any one of these companies, these food delivery app companies, right? They're basically going out and doing the delivery aspect to a restaurant. But what happens with the restaurant? The restaurant basically has handed over all their customers to DoorDash. And now they've got that data on all the customers. And in fact, not only did they hand over that in aggregate, let's say 30 restaurants have just handed their customer information in one area. So it's their customers, it's their preferences, it's what they order, it's when they order, it's how often they order, right? All that stuff is suddenly now in the hands of these DDDNs. And so when you disintermediate customer account control by handing over all your customers to someone else, you're pretty much giving up all the data. And these companies are competing what we call data supremacy. And so they now have the data, which they're now mining to figure out, do we build a ghost kitchen over here, right? Do we, you know, in your zip code, you might like more Thai food. In this zip code, people like more Italian, right? And how do you balance that out? And that's creating those competitive advantages because they know before someone else that, hey, Thai food's no longer in. Everyone's going Mexican, right? Let's go figure out what we do now. Okay, we need a Mexican restaurant to supply. And you start seeing that information. And so that insight becomes so valuable. Yeah, you were saying in your book, you were talking about how, you know, before Domino's, the people they had to worry about was Pizza Hut. But now, as you just mentioned, it's DoorDash, it's Uber Eats. It's so much bigger than what it was before, all these kind of new entities that have come into play. Well, you're, you're, where you live, right? You probably wouldn't order Domino's. You got some great local like chains of great, <laughs> yeah, great pizza, I'm great scrambling. He knows the area. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're gonna get real pizza, right? Um, and so the point thing is, like, you might order pizza maybe once a week, maybe twice a week at most, right? You know, but you probably order DoorDash or Eats a lot more often, right? But you take the Domino's example; they won the battle for digital transformation. They're the poster child, right? You, you know, it's on the app. You can order through Alexa. You can can actually, you know, track the pizza everywhere it is. It's five minutes from the door. You take a picture of the pizza, send it to the AI bot. It'll tell you the quality of the pizza, right? That's awesome, right? But they're losing the overall war because you only order maybe once a month from Domino's, especially if you live where you are, right? You might order once a week for some folks and you order three to five times, you know, from a DoorDash or, you know, Uber Eats or any food delivery app. Uh, and, and, they don't have any restaurants. They don't have any drivers. They don't have any infrastructure. They, in fact, they can actually lose hundreds of millions of dollars and be okay. And that's what people are up against. And that's, that's what these digital giants are doing is they're growing market share and they're doing it very well. 
Yeah, we're, you know, we're talking a lot in the, this episode with you today, focusing a little bit on the banking and finance industry. And just another thing I want to read from your book real quick. Uh, you said, my firm Constellation Research found that just 30 shareholders control 51.4% of the assets of 299 of the Fortune 500 companies. Today, institutional investors like BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street control two-thirds of all U.S. equities. In 1970, by contrast, the same number was controlled more widely by a greater number of private individuals and families. So let's talk about the banking and financial space. Where is it now? Where is it going? What is your research showing, especially in terms of what you just wrote about and I just read here? That's a great point, right? We've seen massive consolidation in the banking space. We've seen it combined with insurance and in equities in terms of the markets. And this overall BFSI space has a few big players. However, what's going on is massive decentralization all across the board, right? Everything from currency being decentralized through cryptocurrencies, everything from, you know, fintech companies emerging that basically have two or three, you know, APIs that people call that just basically drive like the whole market model, everything to wealth management changing to, you know, robo-advisors, right? So you're seeing this massive shift in this industry that used to be very closed, very contained, right? And, you know, very just inaccessible. And so this complete shift, like, you know, take Robinhood, for example, or stock trading. I mean, you're going straight to the market, which is unusual. There's nothing in between. So this kind of like uh, opening up of all the markets is actually creating massive disruptions. Large banks are trying to figure out what their values are. Um, insurance companies are playing a very, very different game because almost everyone's turning into an insurance company with the data that they have. Uh, and then, of course, retail banking is, is like, you know, can I just Venmo you? Can I actually pay you direct? Right. I mean, can I pay you in Bitcoin? I mean, of all the places in the world, like I, I remember somewhere on the Jersey Shore, I'm looking at it. There's this ATM machine that was like, you know, it accepted Bitcoin. You're like, whoa, what's going on here? Like, <laughs> we're like, okay, great. You know, I saw the same thing in Fort Lauderdale. I saw the same thing in Las Vegas. Like, but it was just like, okay, we have Bitcoin ATM machines everywhere now. So, so you're seeing that shift. And, and I think that disruption is going to change, you know, the role of banking, the role of financial services going forward, because, you know, when people don't need an intermediary, what do you do? Yeah, it's a good point. Like you said, it's, it's, it's slowly coming and you're seeing much more of that. And one of the things you also talk about is you suggest that a company flip the pyramid and focus a little bit more on brand. What does that mean? And how can a company do that? I mean, your book obviously dictates in detail of everything, but can you maybe share a little bit of what, what that means and how they could do that? You know, at a high level, it's simple. We spend most of our time on, you know, Fimmer Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Keep me safe, keep me sheltered, worry about my ego, right? It works down that whole path. Well, there's a business version and the corporate version of that hierarchy of needs is the same, right? The bottom line is regulatory compliance, right? At that bottom level, like don't get me sued, don't get me fired, don't kill anybody, right? That's regulatory compliance. The next level up is what we call operational efficiency. And for every dollar invest, you want to save two or three, right? And then up from that is growth. And that's really trying to get your sales up, revenue growth for every dollar invest, you want to make three or four. And then we get to an area on strategic differentiation. That's your business model. And that's how you change. And then at the highest level is your brand. Like, what do you stand for? Why do you exist? What's going on? Well, if you think about the pyramid, all your resources right now are focused on regulatory compliance and operational efficiency. 
right? And if you keep doing that, you're never going to grow. You're never going to get to the next level. What you have to do is figure out how to flip the pyramid because you want your best people and mission and purpose and why you exist. Then you want to think about how do you change that business model? And then you want to figure out how do you sell and get to those digital monetization and channels. The operational efficiency and regulatory compliance pieces that should be automated. That should be run by AI. That should be completely streamlined in software. You shouldn't be wasting your time on that because you want your best people working on the highest value things. Most companies aren't doing that. And that's why they're unable to get out of that cycle. Thank you for saying that. I think, uh, you know, we'd hear about, especially during COVID, you know, brand became so much more important because, you know, everybody was home. They're comparing on price. And so many things happened from Black Lives Matter to talking about elections, things of that nature, people had to stand for something. Did you tend to see that the brands who really stood for something and put that message out did better then and in the long run? I think the brands that didn't necessarily take a political stance, but took a neutral stance with a mission and purpose did better. Um, because they didn't offend, you know, whatever, it could be 48% of the country or 52% of the country or whoever you are, right? I think they actually did do better because what they, what they're able to do is really humanize their brand in a digital era, right? And, and that's the hardest thing. And in a digital era, things are flat. You don't have the fidelity. You don't have the relationships. You don't have the contact. And what you're really trying to do is express your brand in a digital way, right? Now, for some folks, you know, a lot of those mission-driven and social-driven causes are their brand, right? I mean, you take some brands that are standing up against, you know, slave labor or fair trade practices, right? That becomes their brand and that's who their audience is. But you have to be true to your brand. A lot of folks kind of missed the boat. Like, remember all those, like, you know, COVID videos where everything sounded the same with the somber piano music? Like, it's like, yes, how many more yeah. of these can we have? You know, like that didn't help, <laughs> right? But for those who kind of broke out, that kind of made sense. Like, you know, and, and you see that with, you know, all types of services that brand authenticity is so important and it gives you a legitimacy to have a relationship. Yeah, no, beautifully said. Um, you know, going back to this kind of idea of, again, these operational costs and automating, you had mentioned that duopolies will create frictionless transactions and maximize operational efficiencies with automation. So where does AI and particularly conversational AI kind of fit into what you were talking about within that realm? Conversational AI is basically about humanizing the experience. You're speaking, you're talking, the NLP engines to create the ontologies on the background and pretty much figure out how to actually parse out everything else, right? And that's without thinking. And, and that's, that's so important because in almost every customer experience, employee experience, any supplier, partner, we're having new types of journeys really being looked at as where automation plays a role. And so there are four questions every organization is going to have to ask. Ask, where do you intelligently automate everything, right? When do you augment the machine with a human? And that's where we're training and we're learning. We're understanding nuance. Like, why do we break the rules? Like, why do we do something differently? How do we actually get to, you know, an answer? Like, why is there an exception being made? And then there's an area where, where do we augment the human with the machine so that we can make faster decisions? We can serve customers better. And then, of course, when do we actually trust human judgment and actually a human interaction? Once you've broken up all your experiences inside your organization by those 
questions, you'll start to figure out where automation makes sense. You'll start to figure out where voice plays a role because that's the interface of convenience. And for some folks, it might not be voice. For some folks, it might be touch. For some folks, it might be a gesture. For some folks, it might still be, you know, entering something on a keyboard. That's fine. But where voice plays a role is when, you know, you have to do something else. You're in a closed room where you actually have someone's attention, or more importantly, you have the ability, you know, to be able to like, you know, have just carry out conversations without even thinking you're actually working with a machine. Like that's where robo advising is great. That's where, you know, the way that you're chatting with contact centers can be done in the same way. And imagine if you're able to do that with, you know, just financial advice and decisions along like life plans and life cycle plans that helps a lot as well. Yeah. And you have um, in your book, you have a, um, a great image. And then of course, obviously you go into more depth about what you call the AI smart services flow model. Can you talk a little bit about what it is, um, you know, what it means, why it's important, how it works? And you just broke down a little bit some of the questions to ask. But can we talk about this just as a whole when it comes to AI? Yeah. When you think about where AI is going, you want to create these interactions, right? You want to take all the information you have at the moment, which is your digital footprint or digital exhaust or the information you choose to provide in your profile. And you start there. Right. You start there to figure out, you know, just some set of context. Where are you? What's the location? What's the time? What's the weather? Are you smiling? Right. I mean, yeah, are you happy? Like, what's your mode? What's your heart rate? That, that all becomes part of that. Right. And then what you start looking at is you want to get to a set of, you know, immersive experiences and personalization and, and really value exchange. And those three things come into play. So that personalization starts with context. It starts with, you know, what are you engaging with? Or, you know, where are you at that point in time? And, you know, what kind of choices are going to be available to you? So I'll take an example, right? And this is one from the book, um, thinking about, you know, and this is not a financial services example, but you can see how this might work with, you know, a transaction or a visit to a teller or a conversation about insurance or wealth management. But I, let's say I walk into a 50-story skyscraper. Um, it's 2 p.m., um, there's nobody in the lobby. I walk in, 27-point facial analysis, a little gate analysis says, hey, that looks like the guy on the 12th floor. Okay, fine. Um, but it's 2 p.m. I'm walking towards the lobby, right? Shouldn't you send the elevators down? Okay, yeah, that makes sense. They should send the elevators down and that's one way to get there. All right, fine. I get into the elevator, I swipe my badge, right? Get into the elevator. It says, oh, you're the guy on the 12th floor. 90% chance you're gonna be on the 12th floor. Okay, great. So choice one pops up. Would you like to go to the 12th floor? But wait, I've been trying to meet with my boss. She's on the 50th floor and I've been trying to meet with her for like a three-week three window. There's an opening. So choice two pops up and says, hey, would you like to meet with your boss? She's on the 50th floor. Oh, okay. There's an 80% chance I might take that. But wait, choice three pops up and says, hey, there are free donuts on the 40th floor. <laughs> I want to know where I go. Now, these are AI-driven smart services all along the way because when I walked in, the context of what's happening, the choices are there, I engage, right? This is the personalization that's happening, right? Um, the channels could be the console, the elevator, it could be like a handset, right? It could be AR glasses, fine. Then when I get in there, what's it's doing? It's actually saying, hey, here's the probability of something that's going to happen, the anticipatory analytics. It surfaces up a choice, but the more important thing is it's trying to get me to do something. There's a catalyst right? It says, will you take that offer? And then the value exchange occurs. Sometimes it's money. I pay for something. Sometimes it's non-monetary. I take an action. Like in this case, I, you know, I'll go push another button or sometimes it's consensus. I make an agreement or a contract or we schedule an appointment. 
And then over time, it learns from those behaviors and it says, what's the cadence? What's the interaction? Is that one time? Does it happen every afternoon? Is there a dependent process? And then it takes that machine learning, applies it again, and then brings it back into the loop and says, hey, I learned from that. Let's see what he does next time. And and that's where these things go. And so when we think about these AI-driven smart services, every smart service that you have in every experience is going to work like this by providing that data exhaust, understanding how to create personalization at scale, making sure that you deliver on you know, the immersive experiences, and then, of course, the value exchange. And when you bring all that together, and now you have really, really smart services. And I mean, that's a, uh, just an amazing example of where we can go and you know, kind of start little by little and do different things. Like you said, it learns, it improves. When, when some people hear that or some organizations hear that, they have maybe a few different reactions. Some might feel scared, uncomfortable. Oh, I don't want them knowing my information. When your whole book talks a lot about that we already have your information. But then you have the other side that say, that's great, but that seems overwhelming. Like that's so much. How do I start? What do you say to kind of either of those sides when somebody maybe hears that story? Well, I think it really depends on how comfortable you are with your data and sharing consent to that data. If you're open to that consent and you want to have those services, you should be at least given a choice, right? So it'd be like fraud protection on an interaction, right? I call into a contact center. I have everything in voice command. It knows my voice. I mean, people have been recording voice prints as a security measure for a while. So that security measure goes into place. But let's say someone else called and tried to fake themselves and spoofed as me, and they try to go after my account and try to get in and have some access, right? Um, I actually would like the protection that's actually going on because what it would do is it would start shutting down accounts so that the individual won't have access and we'd be able to actually solve, you know, an issue around breaches and security right right away. And and so so that's it's really about your comfort level of how much data you want to consent to and provide. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, you know, when we're talking about all of this, and you had mentioned earlier, you know, flipping the pyramid uh, and focusing on brand. So somebody, obviously, if, if an organization has to build this, you know, they're kind of thinking of the basics or maybe, okay, here's what I want the user to do. Here's what the experience should be. Where does brand fit into this? When we're talking about hearing a certain sound or a certain voice, or we're seeing a certain image, where does that fit into this? And how important is that based on kind of what you said earlier? Brand plays a lot of roles, right? It's someone's voice and it's the recognition. It's a jingle. It's, you know, an experience. Like, for example, certain financial institutions are known for being tech savvy and convenient, right? And for them, it's really about an easy experience. It's mobile driven. It's really smart. It's not a lot of clutter, right? There's a lot, a lot of friction in that process. Other brands are known for high touch, right? You go in there and you want the full personal wealth management experience. You want to see someone behind a desk and, that's the experience you're going to get. Other brands are known for security, right? You know it's going to be painful on your end because of all the security steps, but you know your money's going to be safe, so you don't care, right? You're willing to make that trade-off. And that's where I go back to the point is you have to be true to your brand, right? If you know that's the market that you're playing to, then go after it and, and, and go after it pretty hard. So, and other folks, you know, other brands are really designed for people that are just starting out, right? And so what it is, it's about making it easier to save or make it easier to actually borrow or making it easier to actually transact with friends or make it better to actually build a better credit score, right? And you see that happening all across this market. Do you have any examples of banks or financial institutions or even startups 
um, that are using conversational AI in a really great way? <laughs> I am not allowed to say anything, so I'm going to be a little more careful about it. But I, but there are. No- <laughs> I figured, but I would just ask. <laughs> there are a number of banks that are um, using conversational AI as augmentations um, as part of their overall contact center and channel experience. So. Um, they're being trained to be much more sensitive. I'm, I'm kind of a pound zero guy. So <laughs> I'll go straight to something when I can. And what they're trying to do is make that experience less frustrating instead of having the prompt say, well, I didn't get that. Can you repeat that again? Yeah. No, I meant zero pound. I want a real person, right? So they're getting sensitive to that and they're actually picking up your voice patterns to understand and sense that frustration and they're getting really good at it. And so maybe you're a different tier customer, like on some, you know, in some banks, I might not have a lot of, you know, savings or deposits with them or transactions. They might ignore me, but for other banks where I might have more engagement or more money with them, they're going to actually not only segment that frustration, route you appropriately to the right agent or the right specialist or right banker so that you're not as frustrated. So I see people starting to do that a lot. Yeah. And it, it makes a difference. I think, uh, you know, I even just think of my own experience, you know, it's you want to get the right answer. And sometimes it doesn't matter if it's an AI or a person, but I just want it to understand me. And when it doesn't, you have a bad customer experience and then maybe somebody doesn't want to work with them anymore. And they're like, well, why? (laughs) And so understanding, like you said, some of that data, what's happening, how can we fix that? How can we adjust some of these operational things? All of that completely makes sense. I mean, your whole book is about this, but maybe you can give maybe one or two tips of, you know, how really not just banking and financial, but I would say any business vertical how they can start surviving and thriving in this world of these kind of growing digital giants, as you suggest. Well, I'm going to leave you a couple of quick things. The first thing is the first part of the book tells you about what's happening in the phenomenon here. Digital transformation is not enough. You got to think like a digital giant. The second one is if you can't build a digital giant, partner build joint ventures and startups, work with folks to get there because you are going to be competing with the digital giant at one point or another. Not that Amazon's going to jump into financial services, but hey, they're banking role, they're bankrolling a bunch of supply chain and businesses on the back end already. So are they in banking? I'm not sure, but are they close? Pretty close. Is Facebook doing payments? No, but are they doing commerce? They're getting close as well. So you have to watch that part. And then the last piece is really thinking about the consent and what are the rules and regulations to make sure we have free and fair markets and we allow enough innovation as well in that space. So what can you do to get started? Just be careful. Don't get disintermediated on customer account control. That's the first one. The second one is we're competing on data supremacy. So you're going to want to win on this data game. Um, And that means capturing the right information, building the signal intelligence so that you have the information insights to understand where your customers are going, but also what the larger market's going to do. And then from there, what you want to do, start building bigger networks. Think about the largest network you have. It's your community. It could be your newsletter. It could be like your you know, your reach, it could be the number of machines or devices you have out there. So it could be your ATM network. It could be your retail store operations, right? All that is part of that network effect. And then start thinking about how you look at digital monetization. We got good at putting digital channels. We're okay with our digital business models. Now we got to figure out where ads and search and memberships and subscriptions and, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff comes into play because that's where your digital monetization opportunities are occur. So good. Such a wealth of information. And if people want to learn more about you, they want to learn more about 
your business or about this book, where can they do that? Just go to Constellation Research at www.constellationr.com, or you can go to my personal website, which is um, raywang.org, and you'll find everything there. And of course, check out the book as well if you can. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ray, for sharing your insight. I love the book and I am excited to put some of it into practice myself. So thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. And thanks everybody on the show. Thank you so much for watching and listening. If you want to, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel at Read Speaker AI, as well as our podcast called Creative and Tech, wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Creative and Tech. Want to learn more about conversational AI, text-to-speech, or be notified of our upcoming episodes and events? Learn more at readspeaker.ai.